Good morning, everyone. If uh, it was a little weird for you to hear Pastor Larry, I'm right there with you. But uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And um, so if you have your copy of Scripture with you, would you open to Psalm 19? Psalm 19. While you're turning there, um, again, I'm Larry. Um, one of the elders, and um, I'll be on staff here in a couple weeks, so I'm in, in transition. But um, happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, I realize that not all of us still have our earthly fathers with us in our lives. Some, uh, like me, due to death. Others, due to broken relationships. And I know that's not necessarily pleasant to think about, but it's reality. And uh, I just want to encourage you, um, whether you have your earthly father in your life or not, we have a heavenly father who has promised to be a father to the fatherless, and uh, we can all celebrate our heavenly father today. So happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, I've only had the privilege and honor of opening God's word in a preaching way uh, on a Sunday morning one other time. And uh, ironically, it was Father's Day six years ago. And it happened to be June 18th. So I guess I can only preach on June 18th, I guess. But it's okay, every six years. I'll be retired in six years, so this is your last shot. Um, but I mentioned that day, and I'll just mention very briefly now, too, um, just because I get to. Uh, June 18th is the day my earthly father, Noah William Woods, passed away 43 years ago today. And um, uh, I know it seems sad, but I just want to encourage you. My dad knows Jesus. So someday when we're all in glory, I'll be the first to introduce you to him. And um, he was a, a man who loved Jesus. He provided my home with, I never knew anything from my earliest recollection, my earliest memories. I only knew a, a home that loved Jesus and pointed us to him. And uh, so as a seven-year-old boy in June of 1971, I put my faith in Jesus Christ as a result of my dad being a really good leader of our home. So I'm really grateful to God for my earthly dad, and I celebrate him today. Well, um, in that respect, um, you know, I only had him for a short time, but he did provide that great environment, and it's my goal in life to do nothing other than to provide that same godly heritage for my kids and grandkids, and uh, that's what I intend to do. So thank you, God, for my dad. Well, if you're at Psalm 19, uh, let's turn our intention to here. You follow along as, uh, as I read this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, uh, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This morning as we continue our summer series, Soul Satisfied, a lot of S's in that sentence, um, uh, I'm excited to get to spend a few minutes here in Psalm 19 and hopefully try to do my best at unpacking it for you. Um, As I've spent over these past weeks preparing and studying, I am more convinced than ever that we have a lot of study to do if we're ever to get more than just surface deep and understanding some of these psalms. As I've gotten into them and read other psalms, I'm just so convinced that, of course, David wrote more, uh, more of them than anyone else. He wrote many of the psalms, and so, from so deeply in David's soul of the experiences that he has had in life, he had in life with God, both the joys and the challenges. But just a couple of things to note before we get into verse by verse. First, we note that it indeed was written by King David, and it was written to the choir master. We don't really have any additional information about the context uh, around this psalm, when it was written in David's life, how old he was, what he was experiencing then. But since it was written to the choir master, it's reasonable for us to then uh, assume that it was intended to be sung by the children of Israel when they gathered for worship. And uh, I couldn't help but just use my uh, imagination when I was studying that Jesus, of course, having been raised in a Jewish home, in the Jewish culture, very likely sang this psalm that we're gonna look through today. I wonder what Jesus' voice was like as he sang. Was he a tenor? Was he a baritone? Was he a bass? Did he have good pitch? I think we can probably be sure of that one. He was the perfect son of God. Well, while the Psalms are meant to be sung as worship to God, there is also considerable historical evidence that the Psalms were very much used in the Jewish culture as instruction. And in fact, we see that all through the Psalms. They are meant to be instruction for us. They teach, they explain, they encourage, they help us remember God's works and communicate to us about God. C.S. Lewis had this to say specifically about Psalm 19. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. Pretty high praise from the professor of English literature at both Cambridge and Oxford. 
and of course a theologian as well. Well, in our brief few minutes this morning, I want us to see really just two things and then a couple points under that. Number one, God revealed, and then from that, our response this morning. And then the last psalm, the last, very last verses of this psalm will help lead us seamlessly right into celebrating communion together this morning, as Shay mentioned earlier. Um, although my preaching muscle isn't all that well exercised or developed because I don't do it very often, I was reminded this week that it's God's spirit using God's work that does his work in our lives. And so I'm trusting in that this morning. And then um, I recently read, many of you will will know Tim Keller uh, passed away recently. He said this, there is no bad sermon that leaves people pointing to Jesus. And so that's my goal this morning is for us to leave looking at Jesus. Well, let's dive into Psalm 19 together. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. King David starts the psalm referring to the heavens and the sky. Comparatively, the earth that we walk around on is such a small proportion and tiny volume of all of the created works of our creating God. And so David is telling us there's much to see about God's glory above us, not just around us here on the earth. And then he goes on and says, the heavens above declare the glory of God. I had to take note of the phrase glory of God. Um, I recently reread the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I commend it to you if any of you have not read it. It's a fantastic book. Um, changed my view uh, on God in a great way. But in the book, Dane Ortland talks about how Moses, while he was on Mount Sinai, up there to get instruction directly from God, including the Ten Commandments, he asked to see God's glory. Pastor Chris actually mentioned this in his message last week on Psalm 86 as a way of helping us see that God's grace in our lives displays God's glory because in response, God said to Moses, man cannot see me and live, but I will make all my goodness pass before you And then God says, I will be gracious and show mercy. God is too wonderful for us as human beings to look personally on his glory and live. And yet here in Psalm 19, David tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So how can we not correlate these two references to God's glory? Can't see it and live, but David tells us there is a representation that we can see and appreciate, and it's in the sky above us. If you want to see God's glory, just look up. And then David goes on in verse two, day to day and night to night, he talks about. Both daytime and nighttime provide us with unique ways that we see God's glory. Remember, David writes this psalm not with the perspective, some would say maybe the advantage or the opportunity, but I'm gonna say perspective. David writes this psalm not with the same perspective that we have with modern technology through telescopes to look far into the sky and into the heavens. But especially at nighttime, I can only imagine David's experience in looking into the sky and the heavens at nighttime. And 
specifically in those times when David was being hunted by Saul, King Saul, who wanted to kill him. Remember, David really was alone many of that, much of that time. He didn't have a flashlight, didn't have an iPhone with a lamp on it, didn't have a headlamp, didn't dare light a campfire for fear that Saul's men would spot him and hunt him down. How black the nights must have been for King David and how vivid the night sky with all the stars and the planets must have been. And I can only imagine that that is in David's mind as he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God, the night reveals knowledge. About the only experience I would have that would come close to that of seeing that night sky is on a few of our ministry overseas trips, uh, one to Haiti and one to Brazil, South America, um, when there is not as much residual light there as there is here, and looking into that black sky without the bleed over of residual light, the stars were just absolutely stunning. How magnificent the knowledge of God that is revealed in the night. Continuing on then in verses two through four, we see these terms that David uses metaphorically. He uses speech, words, and voice. There is communication, but it's not verbal. It's not audible. Rather, it's visible. Even though David metaphorically uses speech and words and voice, we don't hear it. Rather, we see it. And how great of our God to provide a universal language that all people of all time in the history of the world can look at that communication and understand it. Romans 1 comes to mind where in verses 18, and 20, 18 through 20, the apostle Paul writes this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so, they are without excuse. And the Apostle Paul actually goes on and quotes this psalm, Psalm 19, verse four, in chapter 10 of Romans to reinforce that the gospel has indeed gone forth and that every man is without excuse because of what we see in creation. So now let's go on then in verses four, the end of verse four through six, and David gives us a couple word pictures here. Let me just read this again to get it back in our minds. The end of verse four says, in them, what's them? Well, it's in these words and, and speech and voice. He, that's God, in them God has set a tent for the son, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I find it absolutely fascinating to see the poetic creativity of David writing about the, just the routine daily course of the sun through the sky. First he says at nighttime, when it gets dark, David says he portrays this as God making a tent 
for the sun to go into. And then when it comes out again, when the sun rises, it's not just some ho-hum yawner of a daily event. No, David presents it as, first of all, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. What groom on his wedding day wakes up with just a ho-hum, lackadaisical attitude? No, in fact, I think it might look something like this, like the picture you're gonna see on the screen here. That is a bridegroom who is excited to have his bride on his arm finally. I have some confidence that many of you will recognize that beautiful bride as my wife Denise. I have zero confidence any of you would recognize the guy with hair (laughs) as being me. But as I studied this psalm and I read that phrase like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, I thought, man, I've seen this picture for 39 years. Denise and I will celebrate our 39th wedding anniversary in just about a month. And I could think of nothing else other than the photographer caught me at a moment of just elation over finally being married with Denise. And then King David goes on with a second word picture, that of a strong man running his course with joy. Don't don't go there. There's not gonna be a picture of me as a strong man, okay? That's where this analogy breaks down. I am a runner, but I'm not even sure that as this psalm says, he runs his course with joy. Those long runs are not all that joyful for me. But to God's creation, David attaches personification to the sun. It courses through the sky with bold confidence and endurance like a strong, conditioned runner. The pictures you're gonna see here, this picture over here is of a sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Denise and I, and actually our daughter Kirsten happened to be with us a couple years ago, got to go on vacation to um, uh, Acadia National Park. It's in Maine, and this is the coast of Maine. It's said to be, I can't verify this, but it's said to be the very first place where the sun rises in the United States. And so we got up early in the night and it was just this great anticipation to watch the sky go from just a black night sky to begin glowing in the east and then to sit there knowing the exact time the sunrise was supposed to be and watch that first peak of God's sun rays come out of the ocean. It was phenomenal. I'm a sucker for sunrises and sunsets. I'm hopeless in that regard. I love them. And so on this side is a sunset, and that happens to be over the Pacific Ocean on the West Coast in Southern California, Uh, actually a few years before this sunrise picture. I happened to be out there for work and um, had the chance to go down to the beach at sunset and take that picture. And for me, again, just imagine, okay, we're in the east, the sun is rising, And in verse six, it says, it's rising, it's from the end of the heavens, it's circuit to the end of them. Just a glorious display, David relishing God's revealing himself to us in the things that are created in these magnificent things that only God could do. Well, finally then, David concludes this section, this first stanza of this song, if you will, with saying, Nothing is hidden from its heat, meaning nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. There's two aspects to this phrase. 
One is just very practical. The sun shines on everything. In fact, um, the planet is completely dependent upon the sun shining on us. And in God's grace, he put it just the right distance from the earth, not too far away so that we are frozen, not too close that we'd be immediately incinerated, but in God's grace, just perfect to sustain us. And it's, it's part of what we commonly refer to as God's common grace. The sun shines on everyone, not just us who believe in Jesus Christ, but on everyone, even though those who don't acknowledge God. And even Pastor Chris talked about this last week as, as part of that air that we breathe in and out without thought, and it's God's grace that we do that. Well, there's a second aspect to this phrase, there's nothing hidden from its heat, and that is the spiritual and symbolic aspect. Yes, we all see the sun, and as Paul said in Romans 1, because the things about God are plain to see by what's been created, we are without excuse. God is revealed in the world through his creation and through his figurative speech and voice and words in the magnificent things that we see that God has done. Well, now as we transition into verse seven and beyond, entrance into this second stanza of this psalm, it could feel like a completely new or unconnected thought, but let's try to think a little bit how David may have been thinking about this. He's just penned his intimate, creative thoughts regarding how God's declared himself and proclaimed himself in what we plainly see in the created universe around us. And now David seamlessly then begins to elaborate on how God has revealed himself in his written word. He begins to figuratively hold up for us in these next words, specifically the Torah, or that written revelation of God's instruction the substance of his divine revelation at the time to his chosen people, the Israelites, of whom David was anointed king. And David holds it up and he begins to turn it at different angles and see different facets and aspects through the context of the experiences of his life with God. And he poetically begins to tell of all those perspectives and facets of the written word of God. In the broadest sense, God has given us the entire Bible so that we can know everything about God, everything he wants us to know about him, how to love him, how to obey him, how to please him, how to be in relationship with a holy God. And by knowing God's word, we can know God himself in his three persons, God the Father, our Redeemer Son, and the spirit that resides within those of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ We just studied Philippians just a few short weeks ago. We concluded that. And in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul writes this about knowing God through knowing his word. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he goes on in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So we see that Verses one through six of Psalm 19, where God reveals himself through creation and the world around us, and then entering into verses seven through 11, where 
he's about to reveal God through his written instruction are not disconnected at all. Rather, David merely shifts his mind from the created material things to how they reveal and how they reveal God's glory to the written instruction that God's graciously given to reveal his character and his expectations for being in relationship with him. So verses seven through nine are really, again, remember this is a song. This is a buildup to the crescendo that will happen in verses 10 and 11. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, we'll get there in a minute. First, there are several words in, this, in these three verses, verses seven through nine, that, that King David uses kind of equally uh, of, ins, of his written instruction. He says, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the command, the rules, they all equal this concept of instruction. Church family, here's a takeaway for us as we are in this summer series, our souls being satisfied in the Psalms. God did not leave us to guess at life and try to figure it out on our own, hoping that we get it right. No, instead he revealed himself to us in his written word that he gave us his instruction. How gracious of him to give us an instruction manual on life and not leave us on our own. So now let's, let's uh, start through these verses. David shows us these different facets and perspectives that I've been mentioning. First of all, in verse seven, he says his instruction is perfect. It's the idea of being blameless. No one can be, bring blame against God's instruction. And the result of that is that it revives our soul. That word revive is actually the very same word in Psalm 23, restores my soul. God's word changes us. His instruction is not laborsome or crushing. Rather, it's restorative. It's not only in the sense of comforting and refreshing and healing. It is all those things, but it's also in the sense that our souls are being restored towards God's desire to have fellowship with us as he did originally in the garden before sin with Adam and Eve. Then he goes on, King David goes on in the, in the next phrase and says, his instruction is sure, it's trustworthy. It has the effect then of, it says it has the effect of making wise the simple, turning a simple person to a wise person. The book of Proverbs has so many references to um, the, the simple or the simple man. And that's a person who's not firmly committed to either wisdom or folly. And because of that, they're very easily misled. It's a person who does not apply themselves to the discipline needed to grow in the knowledge of God's word by, and thereby by grow, growing in our knowledge of God and becoming wise and sure. Loved ones, in a world increasingly where they tell us truth is relative and you can make up your own truth, how are we, as believers in Jesus Christ, going to know what we believe and why we believe it if we're not knowing the instruction God gave us in his word? He goes on then in verse eight and says his instruction is right, it's correct, it's accurate. The result is that we can rejoice over that surety. We can bank on it, we can count on it. The end of verse eight, instruction is pure, it's untainted or unmixed with any kind of evil whatsoever. The result of that is enlightening the eyes. It gives bright eyes, 
that are alert and active as opposed to somebody who's weary and thereby susceptible. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns us that the devil is prowling around looking for someone to devour. Peter goes on and says, our defense against this is to be sober and vigilant. How do we do that? We know God's word. If we know God's word, according to Psalm 19, it says it gives us bright eyes that are active and alert. Then in verse nine, he uses this phrase, the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord. It's more than just an emotion of being terrified or afraid, but it's a fear that actually produces the result of we want to follow God's instruction and thereby demonstrate that we do indeed fear and revere our great God who's given us this instruction. And then finally, the end of verse nine, he says, the rules or the decrees of God, they are a reliable transcript of God's will for our lives. You wanna know God's will for your life? Of course we do, read God's word. This is what he wants us to do. It's written down for us, and it's completely righteous in our Holy Father's sight. So then, King David has now guided us to see God revealed in what's plainly seen in the created universe, and now he's just guided us to see God revealed in the beautiful facets of his written instruction to us, which now leads us to this crescendo of the song. Imagine the cymbals are crashing, the tenors and sopranos are at their high notes, the volume of the song is appropriately higher for emphasis, and the worshipers are pouring out their hearts in adoration to our Father. And here is the overflow of our souls as we comprehend God's goodness revealed. This instruction that God's given us, we are to crave it more than the most exorbitant wealth we could imagine or the tastiest food. Now you may be sitting here thinking, okay, I know I'm supposed to think of God's word that way, but I don't love it that much. I don't love it the way David is explaining it here. Am I the only one? Is everybody else here more spiritual than me? Why don't I love God's word the way David describes it here in Psalm 19? Church family, Jen Wilkin, um, a, a noted Bible teacher and author, has said this, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. It's unreasonable for us to expect that we're gonna love God's word if we're not in it. We can't fool ourselves. It's not helpful for us, me included, to sit in church, nod our heads in agreement, when all the while we know inwardly we're convicted with the knowledge that so many times we are so shallow in our inconsistent and unsustained personal time in God's word. I call you to this lovingly. If that's you, if you need a fresh start in God's word, reach out to somebody, a brother or sister in your small group for help. Come talk to one of us pastors for some ideas on how to do that. Do something, change the pattern, break the mold, but get into God's word. Start afresh at time spent with his word so that we can know the instruction that he has graciously given to us. It may feel very much like duty when you first start back into it before you progress to a desire, you actually want to do it, and then ultimately 
a delight. You love being in God's word. But pursue him. And then we can say, like King David, in this of God's written instruction, they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. And then we will experience the benefits of warning when we stray from the instruction that we read and know, and we'll also experience the wonderful reward of God's blessing when we keep it. Which now brings us to David's response, starting in verse 12. And it ought to be our response also in the revelation of God through what we see in the world and the revelation of God in his word. First is humility. David asks this question right there at the beginning of verse 12. Who can discern his errors? It's a rhetorical question to which the obvious answer is no one. We are both incapable and unwilling at times to do a thorough, honest accounting of our sin. But through the Holy Spirit's conviction, the acknowledgement of our sin should produce a posture of humility. Simply put, we are hopeless on our own. And then that humility produces a second response, and that is contrition, or remorse, being remorseful, or sorrowful, or penitent, or guilty. The answer to King David's rhetorical question of who can discern his errors is found in his plea in these next verses for mercy. Declare me innocent. Keep me back from sin. Let it not have dominion over me. In verses 12 and 13, David refers to sin in two different directions. First, he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And then he goes on and says, he asks that he be kept back from presumptuous sins. First, hidden faults. Hidden faults is the idea of we need forgiveness for sins that we don't even remember that we committed or that we committed in ignorance, not even know that they were sinful. As I studied this, I thought just personally for myself, how terrifying is it that there are times I sin and I don't even know I've sinned and before a holy God, I'm condemned already. And then how gracious of our Redeemer to provide mercy and forgiveness that extends to even our hidden faults. And then David uses this term presumptuous sins. Now we've gone from bad to worse because presumptuous sins are those times that we deliberately choose an arrogant disregard of God's divine instruction in his commands. Oh, can't we relate to David's plea for them not to have dominion over us? How many times do each of us have to repent every day for the same thing, sometimes multiple times per day? It's the kind of sin where it describes in Hebrews 11. It's the sin that clings so closely or so easily entangles us. Isaiah 66.2 says this. It's the Lord speaking. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who humble is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Only through a humble, contrite heart can we then with David allow God's forgiveness to wash over us. David says, then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression, which will produce in us, hopefully, the final 
response that's articulated here in the very last verse of the psalm, and that's our devotion. In verse 14, David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my speech and my thoughts, let them be acceptable. That word acceptable is the idea of same thing of when the Old Testament Israelites had to offer sacrifices to make them acceptable before a holy God. Our only hope is the imputed righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, making our thoughts and what we say acceptable to our unlike Holy Father. David concludes this psalm with personalizing God with two words that we see in verse 14. He says, my rock, and then he says, my redeemer. Uh, look back, it may be on the same page in your Bible or a page back. Uh, psalm 18.2, again, a psalm of David, and it says this, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He uses several words here that are also strong. Fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, salvation, stronghold. God is our very capable protector from that lion that is prowling about, that seeks to devour us, and from our hidden faults, and our presumptuous sins. And then David says, my redeemer. You might recall the the term kinsman redeemer. You might have heard that before from the book of Ruth. It's the exact same word here. It's one who has the rights and responsibilities as a family member to vindicate us before our Holy Father. And of course, that redeemer that David's talking about prospectively into the future is Jesus Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and showing us your glory, showing us your goodness to us in the magnificent things that you've created around us for us to see and know you and your greatness. Thank you for giving us your word. It's clear detailed instruction for what you expect for us in being in relationship with you. But God, mostly we thank you so much for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you for allowing him to become sin for us. Thank you for his willingness to do that and be obedient to you. And I pray now, God, that you would help us to leave here this morning having our souls satisfied with the knowledge that you love us and you provide everything we need for how to love you, obey you, and be in relationship with you. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen.